Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Many people know the multi-talented Martin Mull as a celebrated TV and film actor and comedian, as well as a musician and writer. But what some people don't know is that first and foremost, he is an artist, a respected, accomplished American painter whose work is embraced and lauded by the art world and resides in museums and private collections worldwide, including the Whitney, the Met, and LACMA. Renowned artists from Richard Prince to Eric Fischel and David Sally consider Martin Mull a contemporary American master. Since the 1970s, Martin Mull has been a ubiquitous presence on the big and small screens. From Norman Lear's groundbreaking series, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and Fernwood Tonight, to Arrested Development, Roseanne, Two and a Half Men, and Veep, as well as films like Mrs. Doubtfire, Robert Altman's Ocean Stiggs, Mr. Mom, and Clue. With the Smithsonian American Museum show and a major monograph on the horizon for 2023, we join Martin Mull live at his studio in Los Angeles and welcome him to Art Laws. So here we are in Martin Mull's studio with him today, and we're really excited to talk to you. Out of the many art forms and artistic expressions that you've embarked on, would you say that your first love is painting? Painting is absolutely the first love. Yeah, that was what I started pursuing before I, I was gonna say out of high school. No, way, way before that. At the age of three, I started drawing and just never stopped. And it has always been number one. Now, while I was in art school, I didn't have the proverbial two nickels to rub together. And that was during the folk music craze of the 60s and everybody played music and everybody had a band. And so I put a band together, found out all of a sudden I slowly kind of oozed my way into show business, which was such an, an extraordinary cash cow. While my fellow painting graduates were driving cabs and or teaching or whatever, I was doing really well. And I certainly wasn't going to look to gift doors in the mouth. So I had the secondary career, but painting is, it's always been a means toward an end. And the end is making paintings. So you were saying you started when you were three years old. Oh yeah. You were drawing and do you remember the moment that you recognized that this is what you love? In a word, no. There was no magic flash in the heavens or anything that said, oh my God, this is it, no epiphany of any sort. It was more that it became something as automatic as breathing, that making pictures, whether they were drawings or paintings, and it was mostly drawings when I was young because I didn't have the wherewithal to do paintings, became really as much a system of my body, like circulatory or nervous system. And there was the picture-making system. And, and to deny that would, would have seemed inconceivable. It was just always there, period. And that to the point where I couldn't understand probably how other people didn't draw constantly. Because everybody breathes, everybody eats meals. Why doesn't everybody draw and make paintings? Yeah. It's right. great. <laughs> I remember like, I think you once said that as a child, you won a drawing contest at a young age in school. And did that change anything for you at all? No, there were a couple of moments when I was quite young where I might have gotten a little bit of a goose that I had something maybe just a little above the average bear. That when I was eight years old, I went off to 
Camp Isekis YMCA camp. Terrified, terrified. I was not much of a group guy. And so here I was with all these people. So I found the art shack where they had all these art materials. And I did a drawing of three of the seven dwarfs from Disney. Chalk drawing and got the red ribbon in the big powwow they had at the end of the uh, term. <laughs> I got the second place for uh, three of the seven dwarfs. Maybe I'd gotten first on <laughs> all seven. I don't know. I doubt it. But anyway, I remember thinking, not everybody got that. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe that's something. And then when I was nine, I had a uh, drawing that I had done submitted to a magazine called Children's Activities, which had the uh, presence of mind to have one page in every issue that was dedicated to the artworks of various young kids from three years old to about 12. And they chose one of mine, and I got that in there. And I thought, hey, yeah, maybe. Growing up in suburban Cleveland, was there art in your home? Were your parents artists? Was there anything of that influence? Well, first of all, to call the town where I grew up suburban is is flattering beyond the pale. Um, (laughs) It was uh, ex-Serbia by every extent, and it was absolutely rural. It was farmland, really. It was kind of, I don't know, agrarian reform. I don't know what you'd call it, but it was mostly little truck farms. The only art we had that I could even consider art would be illustrations in magazines, pictures on cereal boxes, and that calendar that you always get from the auto body repair shop that has different cute little puppies for every month or something like that. That and the wallpaper flowers, which uh, I took to memorizing, and they later actually played a part in my painting wallpaper patterns. But no, we had no no art whatsoever. Was it odd that you were so into art? Were your friends, were your family, did they look at that as being something abnormal? No, they did not look at it as abnormal. When it finally got to the point where it could even be considered a talent, it was appreciated. It didn't cut me out of the herd. It certainly didn't give me a, any kind of head position in the herd. It didn't cut me out. No. And the other thing, too, is because we grew up without a lot of wherewithal, if you wanted something, something tangible, you made it. You didn't buy it. We didn't have the ability to go buy it. If you wanted a bow and arrow, you actually went out and found string and a twig on a tree and you bent the thing and you found reeds to make for your arrows. And if you wanted this, you wanted that, you made it. If you were playing a game with your brother, as I often would be, it would be a game that you would do with pencil and paper. There was not something you assembled or a board game or anything like that. You'd do little things like cootie or some of these other games where you'd actually construct and draw. I would say to some extent, the urge to make art came out of economics and the lack of, the lack of financial wherewithal, just something to do with one's time because you didn't have actual toys in your hands to play with, so you'd make them. Right. You don't see it as often now with technology and kids. They don't have those opportunities. Well, it is complete flip side of a coin of someone who would be going online to play games. You can't get more diametrically opposed to what my life was like. You ended up at the Rhode Island School of Design. How did that come into your periphery? Did you know about that school growing up? Was it a place that you felt you could further hone your skills? When I was 16, 15 going on 16, we moved from Northern Ohio to New Canaan, Connecticut. And for my last two years of high school, and that school was uh, certainly more hoity-toity than where I was used to in Ohio. Ohio, you still had people coming to school with mud on their pants and horse manure on their shoes from doing chores before school. So here was this fancy schmancy place, and they actually had a decent art 
program and the uh, head of the art program, a guy named Alois Fabre, suggested that I look into the Rhode Island School of Design, which was just kind of up the road a piece from New Canaan to Providence. And I did and got an early acceptance and uh, a little tiny, tiny scholarship. And that was that. Huh. Art school in the 60s, I can only imagine. I mean, this was like a time with the civil rights movement and the women's movement. And it was such a volatile moment as well for activism. I mean, what was art school like in the 60s? What was RISD like in the 60s? Well, the old term of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it might as well have been chiseled into the facade. It was unbelievable. <laughs> if they have the lady with the, the scales outside the Supreme Court, we should have had Tim Leary <laughs> concrete outside our main building. It was crazy. But the interesting thing is, for all the sex and drugs and rock and roll that was going on, and there was a great deal of it in the 60s, I must say that the biggest aspect, the largest aspect, rather, of life at Rhode Island School of Design was work. People were there to work. And if you did get stoned, if you did do this, it was because you wanted to work on something. People were working around the clock. Making art was preeminently the drive. That, that was it. And that really, for me, to be surrounded by people who were all like-minded was just heaven on a stick. Yeah. And I bet it was very collaborative at times. And Well, it was collaborative sometimes. Not many people worked on projects together, mm -hmm. mostly. But what you would have is a bunch of people working very solitarily in a room, but everybody bent over their drawing board and not talking a whole lot. Or if they were talking, just meaningless drivel. Your concentration was always just on your work. And what were you doing at that time? Like, what were you painting? Well, first of all, knew next to nothing about the world of fine art when I entered the joint as a freshman. You could have dropped names like de Kooning and Rothko and Pollock, and I wouldn't have known who they were for the life of me. So I was learning, 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 and opening doors and discovering. The first two or three years were just all, I would have to say all of the years, were just periods of discovery discovery of what else is out there and discovery of what I had maybe inside me. Was there any painters you were looking at and sort of trying to emulate or I'm just kind of curious who was inspiring you at this moment? Well, I would get inspired by various people at various times. Like when I was in high school, I thought Norman Rockwell was the end of the world. But I think my biggest love affair, if you can call it that, would be with Matisse. Huh. And not because I necessarily was so taken to what he was painting, the uh, the odalisks and the flowers and this and that and the other thing and, and the decorative aspect of him, but how visually intelligent he was. He is probably still to this day, I think he's one of the smartest, if you can use the word smart in terms of making art, I think you can, one of the smartest visual artists to ever walk the planet. There was something about his structures, the way he would build things, the way he would create things and balance things and so forth, that was just astounding. And juxtaposing. And juxtaposing. And the other thing about him was his ability to consistently reinvent himself, that he would become a fauve and then he would become this. And then he ended up, you know, 80-some years old, flat on his back with this bamboo stick drawing on the wall and doing those cut paper things. He was innovating and reinventing until the very last breath. And it was just extraordinarily inspirational. That's Still so interesting is. because 
in some of your early work, looking through even recently, I see the influences I've thought of. And you can see that connection in some of your really? earlier work, like the painting about Edward Hopper. Right. The title I'm not remembering. Yeah. But I see Matisse and... Oh, good. Well, <laughs> in some good, of it wasn't just for, influences. For, it wasn't for naught then. And, and I felt absolutely no bad feelings about stealing. I mean, if, if you could steal something, you just did. That's the old quote of mediocre artists borrow, great artists steal or something. Yeah. And certainly not putting myself in the great artist category, but stealing just I, seemed absolutely perfectly all right. It's out there. I mean, I had a great teacher at RISD who said that the way you become an artist is, is you look at two things. One is you look at yourself and your life. And the other is you look at other people's art. Mm-hmm. And to think, I'm not going to ever do that, you know. Right. There's paintings, too, that not just artists, but specific works that just inspired me no end. One of them is Manet's Déjeuner Solaire, which I find an astounding painting. Yeah. Matisse's Piano Lesson is another one that I find just extraordinary. I think you even titled a painting of yours, Piano Lesson. Oh, I've done a number of things based on that, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And Déjeuner Solaire. Yeah, well, the weirdest thing was... You talk about epiphanal moments. There was a time when I was at RISD, we were certainly close enough to New York, though nobody had the money to get on a train and go down there, but somehow you'd get a ride or whatever. I finally went to the Museum of Modern Art and they had the piano lesson on view. It's a huge painting. I'd only seen it reproduced in books, just postage card size. It's a big, big painting. And I walked into the room and my jaw dropped when I saw it. And the room was just filled with tourists people everywhere. And I'm sure I was quite rude and pushed people aside and said, let me get a better look. And finally sat down on this couch opposite the painting or something, one of those little leatherette numbers they have. And I'm just staring at the thing. And all of a sudden, I couldn't hear a word that anyone else was saying in the room. It felt deadly, deadly silent, even though I know there were people moving around and working. I couldn't hear it. And I actually literally, while looking at this thing, heard the sound of piano being played. Wow. And at that point, I said, Jesus Christ, it is possible, despite having these hands of clay and being extraordinarily mortal, to every now and then, even if by accident, do something magical. And that was the booster rocket for me at that moment. I love that. That's a beautiful story. It's funny because you talk a lot about discovering art as a young person and having those moments where you reach that level where you do something and maybe you don't expect, you don't understand how you were able to do it. Do you feel like there's some level of a divine spirit or an alchemy when it comes to painting that artists are able to tap into sort of this other place, other realm? Is there any of that? I think it's more having your ear right on the door so that if someone does knock, you're going to hear it no matter how subtly and you just have to respond to it. I think that, again, I think it was Matisse who actually said that people make art in spite of themselves. I think there's a great truth in that. And I think occasionally, quite by accident, you can do something. And whether it was just nothing more than an accident remains to be said, I don't know. But occasionally you will do something more than you're capable of. Right. Where that comes from, I don't know. But I sure know that it's inspiring and it's narcotic. And then it just makes you want to go back for more. It's like hitting a hole in one in golf. What are you going to do the next day? You're going to play golf. (laughs) (laughs) So after RISD, or one of your final years there, you went to Rome. And what was that like? Because that must have been a very new experience if you hadn't been overseas before. 
originally we had this kind of, I say, ersatz program, honors programs, because the honor was such that it cost quite a lot more to go than to not. So how much of an honor is that? But anyway, they shipped a handful of us, a dozen or so, to Rome for our senior year. And I went, I think, with about $35 in my pocket. So I was really hand-to-mouth there. I was singing folk music in a trattoria in exchange for dinners and just walked around and painted. It didn't inspire me the way I think it should have. I mean, I think it may have been because I was all of 21 years old, which is a babe. I just wanted to get back to Providence, back to my girlfriend, back to what I knew and so forth. So I short-ended the trip and came back and finished my senior year in, in Providence. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just talk about your supporting yourself at RISD with music. And I know you formed a group. And can you just tell us a little bit about that, what your music was at that point, especially within the 60s and within your experience there at RISD? Well, the the music happened where I saw early on when I was there that it was the hip guys that were playing the music. So you want to be one of them. And so I had toyed with the guitar in high school and then I brought it back out in, in college It was more just a way of socializing than anything. It wasn't a way of supporting myself, really, because there wasn't enough work. I had no gigs of any sort, not until I was uh, into my master's program, and then I had like one or two. I was supporting myself on the uh, stipend that they gave me as a a master's student. I was an assistant to a teacher. I was supposed to be an assistant to a teacher. Actually, I was teaching a full drawing course for sophomores, but... That was how I supported myself. The music was done, I don't know, partially just trying to be socially hip, I'm sure, partially because I really enjoyed it, partially because I didn't think it was that far afield from the making of paintings and art because Jim Dine was doing all of his happenings and there was an awful lot of crossover, it seemed, between performance art and painted art and so forth. My first bands were pretty crazy. We were certainly not what you call regular rock and roll bands. The band was called Soup, and it really was Soup. It was just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and everything, and some hot water. It was, (laughs) was, I think it was a a way of trying to do another form of expression, actually. Yeah. Were you responding sort of against this like folk movement that was happening that just seemed so earnest? It sounds like with bringing the happenings into your music, there was a sort of rebel kind of feel to that or renegade kind of feel to that work. I'm just trying to put that in the context of what was going on musically at the time. I would have to say you're spot on. I've always been at least skeptical of the poetic approach to anything. Um, (laughs) The kind of folk music and the world peace and the wishful thinking and the dream state and all this other kind of stuff kind of passed me by. I was much more nuts and bolts about everything. In fact, during all the uh, protest songs, for instance, I had a a song that was in my act once called Stop the War or I Won't Stop Singing. (laughs) And it was just the worst song I could possibly (laughs) do. And to perform the song, I had taken an old guitar and had, in essence, wallpapered it with newspaper, telling people that I made this myself out of recycled papers. (laughs) And the guitar strap was tied rags together, et cetera. Like it was just, I was trying to be as new age as possible, you know, and it was just, it was a joke. And I've kind of always maintained that stance, I'm afraid. Well, it sounds like your music and sort of the comedic element of it was, in fact, performance art. Yeah, I would have to say it's performance art because I wasn't really a stand-up comedian. I didn't come out and say, where are you from? How are you doing tonight? Right. 
or anything like that. It was a whole other thing. I had my own furniture on stage with me from my living room and so forth and so on. My songs were about very disparate subjects. And I wasn't really a musician's musician either. It wasn't like this is a band you come to really listen to the music. I don't know what it was, but it it was, it was a living. <laughs> I know that. Right. And you were staging these things with visual elements at yes, the same time. Yes. So it's yeah. interesting. And then there was this, just out of RISD, you were in this guerrilla performance group, Smart Ducky. Smart Ducky. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, Smart Ducky's main claim to fame was, it were three or four of us, we had done a small film called Mondo Linoleum when we were in RISD. It was a terrible little three-minute thing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whatever happened to that. We won second prize at the Brandeis Film Festival with a film called The Wedding of Dorothy and Morris. And what it was was we simply found their film at a Salvation Army that they had taken of their wedding and submitted it. <laughs> and scratched out their names at the end and put our credits in. And we got the second prize there. But the was we were sitting around one night bemoaning exhibition space and the lack thereof for our paintings. We were all painters and photographers, etc. And uh, realized that there, there was a huge big building right in Boston, the Museum of Fine Arts, that had a room with no art in it. What's the sense of that? there's a place. And it was the men's room. So we did a show called I'll Be Art in a Minute or Flush Through the Walls. We sent out notices printed on toilet paper, invites and everything like that. We said to be there at eight o'clock sharp on a night that they were open till nine. And at five of eight, all of us just stormed the Bastille, as it were, and just quickly taped up our stuff inside the stalls and on the walls and so forth and so on. (laughs) And we had a huge turnout. We had three, 400 people show up, men, women, children, and had a great show in the men's room. It was torn down by the museum people the next day and all the work thrown out. But at least we had our day in court. It was great. I love it. That show ended up leading to the museum bringing on somebody to curate contemporary art, I believe, right? I'm not sure it did or not. I didn't pay any attention. Oh, okay. All of the research I've done, it said that because of that show, they ended up bringing a curator for contemporary art. I'll be damned. Well, yeah, there you go. It was revolutionary over there. Great. And I think with Smart Ducky, there was also this manifesto about edible art. Yes. Didn't Dave Hickey met you through that, (laughs) who later, major critic, did the essay for your New York show, The Landmark. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, we did a show called, I forget what it was called, but it, it was all edible art. And like the Brancusi was actually a little cocktail waiter sitting upright on a toothpick. And then we did different colored square cheeses for Albers and uh, so forth. And so on. the whole show was just consumed. Except one doggy bag did go into the freezer at the uh, Boston Institute of Contemporary Art. Is it still there? That's amazing. I think it's past the serve by day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Little mold growing. Yeah. That's wild. So after Rizzy, this short detour into these kind of more conceptual, fun mm-hmm. movements, guerrilla movements. And then, as I understand it, you return to kind of painting and more purely, more back here, Ohio landscape. Yeah, I went back once I had kind of a regular job as a musician going around and playing things. I, I needed to have something that wasn't physically that adventuresome, like not big canvases or something the other thing, but I went back to my love of early Disney and I'd always loved the animation cells and I liked the way they were made. They were painted backwards. 
all the paintings on the back of the thing. And I also learned that there had been a, historically, like in the Hudson River School or some of those people, there were these people who painted on glass, painted backwards. And I thought, I like this idea. So I started doing a whole bunch of what were essentially cells from movies that were never made. They were done exactly like cell paintings with uh, ink and paint and did that for about, oh, eight years, longer than that, maybe. And had some shows with those and, and they did rather well. And it was something I could do and still maintain this other career that was bringing in the money. And that finally led me to the airbrush, which was uh, because the, the paintings started getting tighter and tighter and to the point where there were things I could not do with my hand. And I had some friends that were airbrush illustrators. I just was totally enamored with what they were able to create with an airbrush. And that kind of led me into a world of photorealism for about 10 years maybe longer. Right. Were you looking at any of like James Rosenquist or any of those pop painters at the time? I'm just curious with the, the airbrush. What were you looking at at the time? I was looking at the time, I was looking more at the, like the Richard Estes and the, and the people like that who were Don Eddy, other airbrush artists that were not specifically, not in the pop range, but were more photo derived. Right. John Salt, for instance, who I still think is quite a remarkable painter. No, I was looking at not so much in pop art. I always, for some reason, thought pop art was just a little cheap. Hmm. Well, Dave Hickey at one point, I think in the essay for your show, Admissible Evidence, talks about throughout your life as a painter, then and now. He said specifically that you were simultaneously beguiled and horrified by the sweet eccentricity and radical emptiness of white culture in America. And also perhaps, I would say, maybe beguiled by the American dream, both in its promise and its despair. I see that thematically running through a lot of your paintings. I would say that that would indicate, if that is true, that I'm trying to make a statement, and I'm not. I don't feel any need to make a statement at all. I feel more repertorial that I'm simply reporting on what I've seen and what I see. Because the making a statement presupposes a judgment, and I'm not making a judgment. If I could liken myself, I, I would say it's more like when Audubon was roaming the plains, and all of a sudden he'd see the uh, scarlet twisted titmouse or something like that and say, Jesus, there's no pictures of this, and this thing could go away. I better make a picture of it before it goes away for good. And I tend to think of that's how I look at moments in my life or moments that I recognize as maybe important, not even why they're important, mm -hmm. simply that they are, they appeared, and I'm reporting it. But I'm trying not to make a judgment mm -hmm. because I don't think a picture is about anything other than itself. And that's become more and more of an issue now that we get into the area of, I guarantee you that 100 Biden's paintings are not being sold because of what they are. They're becoming because of all the extraneous information about them, that they're Hunter Biden's, that they're this, they're that, etc. It has nothing to do with the picture. Well, I think that's wrong. I don't think any more than you buy a Rubens because, boy, I just like looking at naked ladies. You know, no, you, it's a piece of art. It is itself. It has its own dimensions, its own world, its own reality. And... It isn't about anything other than what it is. It's an object. And an object doesn't have a judgment. I love that because it's almost the only thing in the world that can be yeah. just about yeah, itself. Yeah, there's very little. Yeah. 
Is there an element, though, of self-discovery in your work? Because I feel like there is such specific imagery that you pull and the placement of it. Is it more about your discovering in the process of taking these images, culling them, placing them, and then figuring it out as you go along? Does it hark back to your own life? The imagery is so specific. So I'm just wondering where that stems from. Well, I specifically look for inspiration or imagery in a certain area, which is pretty much the period of my boyhood and early adulthood. And I'll go to old life magazines or old photos that I can collect or so forth and so on. But then it's not like I'm looking for anything. I will go through a stack of little three by five Polaroids that somebody might have sent me or something like that. Right. And as I'm going through, and I cannot explain this, I'll just go, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Something in this thing will resonate with me. It could be nothing more than a lady with curlers in her hair or something. It can be nothing more than a wheelbarrow sitting on its side. I don't know what it is, but something will resonate. To say that it's deja vu, it could be, but there are... Times in one's life when you're eating in a restaurant and you take a bite of something and gee, this tastes just like what my grandma used to make. You know, when you go back, it just you get that flash. So those things will now become my actors in my play. Right. And now the job is to put these actors into a play and put them on, on the canvas and so see how they interact. And then my job is to surprise myself as much as I hope the viewer will be surprised by the interaction. And that all comes down to really formalist concerns. The placement of this, the placement of that, the edge of this, the edge versus that of the other, the color of this, the tint of that, the lack of color in this one. And, and, and all that has to balance out to the point where it seems to, once again, give me that flash that I first had. Does that make sense? It, it makes total sense. I mean, there's almost, when I look at your work, it's funny because there's a sense of nostalgia, but there's also this sort of underlying, maybe I'm incorrect here, but there's an underlying darkness as if you're looking back at a time that maybe was more happy or that there was a time where you sort of miss. And then we kind of look at it in the context and lens of today. And I'm not sure if that's conscious, but I was just wondering if there's a statement about what we've lost in the last few decades that's coming through your work intentionally or maybe subconsciously. Well, I would say that it is more than possible for someone to look at my work and walk away with that idea. Right. But whether or not I put that idea there, that's not necessarily true. Right. The Rolling Stones gets on stage and plays Satisfaction, and you sit there in the audience and say, that is the best song they've ever done. It doesn't mean that Mick thinks so. Right. Again, what I try to do is set a stage and make a play. If it's death of a salesman, I'm not trying to make the statement that door-to-door salesmanship should be banned. And we should go back to the day of barter. It's a play. And you take away from whatever you think. And if you walk away thinking, gee, I really feel sorry for Biff, then that's what you got. Right. right. And I so, love how you said you surprise yourself right. as you're creating these. Well, I certainly and- don't want to do something I already know what it's going to be. Right. What's and- the point in that? And I imagine that gives it a life and a sense of surprising the viewer for the same reason. I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. For me, your paintings always surprise me. There's so much of the unexpected and that creates this feeling of excitement and joy and curiosity and all sorts of things. But as far as the surprise thing goes too, I must confess that I like a little bit the idea 
that by using imagery that is at least historically friendly, something, you know, some of the images I have are quite historically friendly, that, you know, these are not threats. These are not Bruegel's demons and devils. They are not people with guns. These are not people with spears or beheaded grotesques hanging from trees and shit like that. No, these are fairly simple everyday things. And so in that respect, the painting itself offers a welcome mat out front where you can come in. You can come on in. It's okay. It's safe. No, it's fine. Everything's fine in here. And I kind of like the idea that once you're in, like in a a bad B-horror movie, you hear the door slam and lock behind you. (laughs) And you go, oh, Jesus, I'm in here now. Uh Uh-oh. And you start to look around, and you might see that there's something rotten in Denmark. You just might. You might feel some tensions. You might feel some things going on that don't quite add up, that there's no reason why that image should be with that one, except it is. And those kind of mysteries and journeys I definitely look forward to. Well, let's talk for a second about a specific painting. For example, the importance of an annual vacation. (laughs) I mean, this one, you can talk about describing. What stands out to me is that you've got this house on fire, suburban or rural, kind of middle American house. And this family were pristinely dressed entering a white Cadillac with neatly packed suitcases. You've got this sort of indifference, it seems, or oblivion to what's going on behind it. Well, I would have to say, if I was looking at that painting, again, do I surprise myself? Yes. So can I look at it then? If I'm surprised, then therefore I can look at it as any other observer would. And if I look at that from a distance, not as the maker of the image, but as a viewer of the image, I would say if I take anything away from that, it would be the concept that life goes on. Don't get your panties in a knot. <laughs> you know, yeah, the house is burning down, but you're going on vacation, you know, and some of this is like to take all of these things that are supposed to be so life altering and life shattering and this, that, and the other thing, and earth shattering rather, and think that we can't survive them. Oh my God, we have this, we have that. And here are these people, their house is burning down. They're going on vacation because this too shall pass. I remember there was a thing, and I probably have this wrong, but it still carries the weight I want. And that is a, supposedly Alexander Wolcott, who was a member of the Algonquin Round Table and a great wit, was reviewing plays for Broadway. And there was a play, I believe it was called For Our Time Only. And his review simply read, not timeless enough. <laughs> And that is kind of how I want things like that to be, you know, like, yeah, that's, that is an event that happened. The house burned down when we were on our way to Lake Havasu, but we came back, we rebuilt the house. The kids are fine. I got two grandchildren now. Life goes on, but it's not the end of the world. I think would be something you might take from that painting. The other is the two things that you never thought could be in the same picture together are, and at least graphically, I think the painting works. Strongly. Is optimism what you're hoping to convey, or is optimism something you're looking to experience when you are creating a work? I would have to say that in general, I am an optimist and have been for pretty much a long time. I think my optimism is being put to the test currently, Mm -hmm. but I would like to think the paintings are optimistic. So the titles of your work are integral (laughs) to the paintings, and they really work together. And I wonder if this is where you as a writer 
and a comedian that potentially influenced your paintings. And what do the titles mean to you and how do you come to those? When I title paintings, I usually try to make it a little stupider <laughs> than, than I probably could, only because it's a way of pointing out when you finish a painting, and especially if it's got some, some very happy accidents in it, and it's got some things in it that are beyond your ability, and you think, wow, you could have a tendency to say, ain't I something? But if you put a silly title on it, all of a sudden you become quite mortal once again and faulted. And I try to do that with my paintings, just give them titles that just take any kind of pomposity or sting out of it. Like, what's an example of a couple that oh. stand out to you? There's one that I did, which shows this very, very sad and frumpy lady just sitting on a couch and a guy standing there next to her on her shiny floor in Bermuda shorts, looking at the garden, which is kind of a wreck, and it's raining cats and dogs outside. And it's called The Joys of Indoor-Outdoor Living. You know, and, one of and, my and favorite yeah, paintings. And, and that's the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I go back to the painting. One of my favorite paintings of yours is the search for truth in advertising. Yes. I love that painting. It's funny because it was done in 2014. And again, this was when the Ferguson riots were happening. And in so many ways, I feel like you were responding to sort of this cultural shift that was taking place. And I wonder Maybe, if that was- Alex, can you describe like your impressions of that painting? I'm curious. Yeah. You know, you have this older man with these two children in the foreground and they're looking at something. It's almost like a, a ball of some sort, a crystal ball. And then in the back, you have what looks like rioting and looting. And it's in this sort of neighborhood that doesn't feel quite right because the imagery in the foreground feels like something from a Hopper painting or the Saturday Post. So to me, that was an interesting juxtaposition, but it feels so nostalgic, but also so current. And I felt like there was this political underlying feel, but now I wonder if that was maybe more subconscious or I guess I'm just trying to understand the paintings that are especially more recent because I really do feel like they really come back to this idea of what we're dealing with today. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Well, here's the interesting thing. Because of what we're dealing with today has such preeminence in all our thoughts, in all our media, in all our everything. It's impossible to look at that painting without having those thoughts. You can't look at that painting and think this is like a bowl of fruit or this is a reclining odalisque or anything like that. You must make those judgments. And part of what I was trying to do, I think, is saying that, again, this too shall pass. Life goes on, so forth and so on. And if I make this just a crazy enough painting that I have these crazy people here with a crystal ball looking for the truth in advertising, while there's like a street melee going on, et cetera, et cetera. It's so inconceivable that the only way to look at it and say what this is, is to say it's a painting Mm -hmm. and that it's not a report card. It's not a piece of journalism. It's a painting. Right, right. And yet I realized that I can't do that anymore because the critical powers will go to one of two places that I'm either defending this soft white underbelly that has done so much so wrong for so long, or I'm defending the black people who are looting, which I'm not, and I'm not doing either. I'm not defending either. I'm simply making a picture and I'm using elements that I see around me. Right. Period. 
And if that sounds like a, a person who's underachieving, then I confess, yes, I probably am. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, what I love about your work, I look at a lot of paintings, I look at a lot of contemporary art, and I feel nothing when I see a lot of contemporary art. And when I see your work, there's so much there, so much mystery, there's so much feeling, there's so much sadness, there's so much joy. And I kind of love that idea that you're putting it out there and letting the viewer feel what they feel and experience it how they experience it. But there is something there. And I honestly don't react strongly to contemporary art in so many ways, but your paintings are so different. Well, and they probably draw us in as viewers to try to make meaning of it. I think that's what we do naturally anyway, but a painting that doesn't have life to it won't do that. But a painting that is alive, that has surprises within it, that yeah. has the unexpected, that is when our viewer is captured and they want to make meaning of it. So right. if there are familiar elements, we as human beings try to tie them together and make the narrative. Well, that's what I'm, my hope is, that the human beings that see them will tie them together and make a narrative of their own making, of their own. You are simply, you're setting the buffet, but you're not telling people how much of which salad to take or telling them whether to eat or not or whether or how much to eat. You know, that you just offer it up. It's, it's just something to partake. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So David Sally, the artist, said about your work that there's a through line from Edward Hopper to Reginald Marsh to Walt Kuhn to Martin Mull. There's a deep vein in American painting that penetrates the American dream with all of its promise and paradox. And for Sally, it seems that you were carrying out that tradition. Now, I think he sees you as a distinctly American painter. First of all, I'm very flattered that he would include me with those painters. That's, that's very kind of him. I would say Hopper is, is another person who I've looked at long and hard, and I consider him quite magical. But because the other thing about Hopper that is very important to me as a painter is Hopper was able to allow people to do something that we really can't do, which is we really can't examine an instant. His paintings allow you to examine a split second, just an instant, that you can sit there and spend three or four hours staring at this one tiny moment when the guy sat down at the bar in the diner or whatever, and it, and you can actually think about it. Like, life goes by so friggin' fast that you can't, you can't absorb it, really. Right. You can't appreciate a lot of it. And so Hopper has allowed me to appreciate the idea of the instant. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing about when you get a painting to work, when the left corner actually works with what's happening in the right corner, which actually works with what's in the foreground and the background. And this, it all comes together. And what it comes together in is an instant. Like when you walk into an art show, I don't know about you guys, but I'll look at paintings and I'll see some, and sometimes I'll see one and it just hits me like a, a Mike Tyson right cross. It just goes bam. Mm-hmm. And you see the entire thing at once. It is that instant, and that's when the painting really, really works and where it has some import. And that, again, comes from Hopper, and that's, again, something I strive for. So, And I think you achieve. You do. Thank you. So in your life, you, I mean, you have been a success in so many areas as an actor, as a comedian, as a writer, as a recording artist. How were you able to balance painting and be so prolific as a painter when you are being pulled in so many different directions and having so much success in so many different fields? Well, I was talking to my daughter the other day, and I said I had to confess as I'm near 78 years old now. It's time for confessions. 
I said that basically she was talking about my doing several different things. I said, yeah, I've been like a solid B student in all of them. Had I been an A student in all of them, I don't think I would have done the others. You know, it was, <laughs> if, if I sat here and said, yeah, I've got an Oscar and I've got a Grammy and I, I have my one man show at the Museum of Modern Art and the, no, none of those. It's still a B student. And so that makes it a little easier to do these other things. I would things. say you're being modest. Yeah, very modest. A B student and all of those no. things and a triple A as a painter. But it's interesting because you have managed to do all of these things. And, and you told me that you've recently been writing. Well, more. what's happened is I think ever since the virus and a little bit, not to get into tricky subjects, but why not? The cancel culture thing, the world of art has, at least what I see in the galleries and the museums, et cetera, is, is changed drastically. It is now seems to be all really an adjunct of identity politics. And the concept of meritocracy is kind of short-ended. And uh, it's more like, well, who do you represent and what are you trying to argue about or what are you trying to do? And this is why we'll give you the show and this is why you do it. And that's based on everything I've been saying all afternoon here. That's contrary to what I think paintings are. I think that they're objects and they add their own merit and their own life. So it's kind of turned me off a little bit to making paintings for one thing. Um, just on a practical level, am I going to make a whole bunch of big paintings that I can't put in a gallery because they don't want them because they're not about anything like that? And then I crowd my studio and then have more things to get rid of. What's the point? You know, so I've been making a few smaller things and have turned to writing, which is something else that I'm finding that I really enjoy. Right. Tell me about it. What are you? Um, I wrote a novella and a, about a dozen short stories, and I got a few more to go. And if there's somebody foolish enough to publish it, I'll let them. You know, but uh, they're kind of like my paintings. You know, I try to surprise myself. It's interesting. I don't know really from sentence to sentence always where it's going to go. Your brother's been reading them. Robin's brother is my dear, dear, dear friend, and I guess my art dealer. If you have to give him a title, Jesus, I don't even think of him. In, in a business sense like that, but he has been instrumental to all of the success I've had as a painter. None of it would have happened without him. It's phenomenal. And he now reads my stuff. He's just the best pal you could ask for. You talk about cancel culture and you had such a impact in the comedy world and in the recording world. Do you feel like with the climate of what's going on today, could you have had the, the stand-up career that you had? Could you have had the recording career that you had had it been in the context of what we're going through today? I would have to say that somewhere between 75 and 90% of the things I did and said would have been taboo. <laughs> so I would yeah. have had a successful career mowing lawns. Right, right. You know, you even look back at the Norman Lear television that you did with Fernwood and Fernwood. With Mary Hardman. I mean, could that exist today? No, it couldn't. No, because everyone has got their feelers out and is so protective of their own identity. I did a movie recently about Doug Kenny, who was the founder of uh, National Lampoon. Right. Called The Feudal and Stupid Gesture. I played Kenny after he died. I played his ghost. Anyway, right. the other actors that were playing the other writers for the magazine were mostly stand-up comedians that were moonlighting as actors for this film. And they were all saying that they can't go to colleges anymore. They can't go to certain clubs anymore. They can't do their material. You come out if you say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. To me, that's a fairly innocuous statement. 
there are those that would pick that apart. Mm -hmm. Comedy is sort of the last place where you can be completely honest. And in many ways, art as well. So it's, I think we're in trouble when the last frontier of free speech is in trouble. So You know yeah. something I find kind of interesting, and that is there have been rebellious movements that have found their foothold in entertainment forever. It's, it's always happened. When George Carlin came out, oh my God, he was, you know, this. When Lenny Bruce came out, there was, it was totally different. It was again, but each one of those and others that I can't think of offhand had with them a sense of humor and a new humor. I have yet to see any new humor or sense of humor come out of the cancel culture attitude. It is humorless. And if so, if it's humorless, then it's kind of humanless. Right, exactly. And in the name of freedom and irreverence, that's the excitement of what you were doing with Norman Lear. And yeah, and yeah. With the firm of tonight, for instance, we tried to break as many rules as we possibly could and get away with things that you couldn't get away with. And not using four-letter words, because we didn't do that, and not being bigoted or racially or sexually or... The, the little rules we were breaking, like one of my favorites, and this would mean nothing to anyone, I guess, is we had a thing where supposedly we were a $1.98 kind of show, just taking place from somebody's rec room almost in Furman, Ohio. At one point, I pointed out, the host did, myself as host, that it was our cameraman's birthday. And I said, come on up here, and we're going to sing happy birthday to you. And you see the camera shake, no, 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 no. I said, no, come on up here. And he goes, oh, okay. And you see the camera go down where it's just shooting a tile floor, like he's left this post. <laughs> and for over a minute, all you hear is all of us singing happy birthday. Now, this is national television, which is nothing but a shot of a floor. And to me, breaking that rule of being so unprofessional <laughs> was one of the highlights of the show for me. Those are the kind of rules I like to break. The other things I think are just too, you know, too fragile. Yeah, I wouldn't say, like, Garth Gimbel was pretty... Today, he would have been bashed, and yet he was this, you love to hate him, but you also love him. Yeah. How did that happen? I mean, that was genius, because I'm talking about Mary Hartman, and Martin played this character of Garth Gimbel, who oh. was a chauvinist, and he would sit down on his chair every day after work and just stick his hand out and expect the wife to bring drink. a drink, to just fill that hand. Well, you know the hard part about that, Robin, was when... I had never acted in anything, not counting my draft physical. And uh, <laughs> I got that job. I thought, well, I've been working as a performing comedian, doing my road act and so forth. And this is a comedy. So therefore, I'll be able to make the leap. You know, I've never even been in a school play. And when I got there and found out it was about wife abuse, I realized very quickly that there's nothing funny about that. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Right. And so I had to kind of learn to swim by being thrown in the icy water. It, it was really tough trying to find something funny about that. But the worst thing was, uh, remember once I was doing some promo on the road somewhere for the show, and this guy was an absolute prick to his wife. He was terrible. I don't think there was any physical abuse, but there was every bit of psychological abuse you could imagine, and, and a few things that bordered on physical. Right. Anyway, he was terrible. They opened up their mics at this radio station where I was doing promo, and some guy called in and said, yeah, I just want to tell uh, Mr. Mull there that thank God for him. He's the only person on television that has the balls to show how you really should handle women. Oh, my God. Wow. And I was just dumbstruck. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I did not respond to the man. 
But then it also made me realize something later, and that is that all television is educational TV. That if it's on television, it's educational. You would think that someone is going to take whatever they see and say that's what to do. Wow. It's scary. Yeah, that is pretty scary to see the impact. But at the same time, you managed to make that character somehow palatable, and I'm not sure how. Part of it was that I had a lot of scenes with Dabney Coleman, who was absolutely a genius. He has the driest, most wonderful timing of anyone I've worked with. He and Fred Willard. That's been my luck, is I've always been able to work with people who just keep the boat afloat. It's great. What was that like with Fred Willard? Because you you guys worked together beyond America Tonight, Fernwood Tonight. I mean, you continued on Roseanne. What was it like working with him? Because I love when you guys are together. Well, I've said this publicly, so I'll say it again and then go on about it. It was like trying to follow somebody in your car who refuses to use their turn signals. <laughs> you had no idea where Fred was ever going to go and where it might lead you. And it was the most <laughs> wonderful adventure. It was as close to making a painting as I can come with an actor. He was just astounding. He had a different roadmap, just in a different drummer. Brilliant. That's so nice. So it's like the element of surprise that they're in your paintings. Absolutely. And back to that for a moment, I know as much as you're concentrating on the writing, I believe you have an upcoming Smithsonian show in a few years. Supposed to. Also a monograph that's coming out of your work in 2023. That would be nice. Yeah. 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 Looking forward to that. Got to get all this stuff in before I go toes up. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of time. Well, Martin, at the end of this, this has been a delight, but we do this thing called the quick draw. Okay. It's six questions, 60 seconds, and one word answers. One word answers? Yep. Alex, take okay. it away. Okay. Who are you listening to right now? Robin. <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading? I am reading a book called Criers and Kibitzers, Selected Short Stories of Stanley Elkin. Favorite contemporary painter? (sighs) Gerhard Richter. Favorite comedian? I will not say because I have too many that are friends and I would not single one out. Okay. Most underrated artist? Ensor. Favorite guilty pleasure? Ice cream. There you go. All right. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. 